Welcome to episode five of Wandering Spirits of the Pacific Northwest. Cozy up to the fire and make yourself some hot cocoa and join me and my co-host James for a journey into the enchanting world of Christmas ghost stories. In this festive episode, we'll be traveling around the globe in search of hidden yuletide treasures and lore and explore the shadows that dance between the twinkling lights and tinsel. Christmas isn't just about joy and Christmas celebration. It's also a time when the veil between our world and the mysterious realms beyond seems to thin, allowing spirits to share their stories. So did you know that this was a tradition? Because I really didn't until quite recently, actually. Now, it gained popularity, of course, in Victorian England, and perhaps because in that time, uh, Charles Dickens came out with his classic, A Christmas Carol. Um, but it was just one of the many Christmas stories that were around at that time. So what was the gain in popularity right at the intersection of, a cure, of Victorian, the Victorian era and the Industrial Revolution? Why did that happen? Well, this was in big part due to the Industrial Revolution really modernized how things were printed and distributed. The printing press was invented, uh, as an example. So, and remember, Victorian times were kind of a repressed time about a lot of things. You didn't talk about a lot of things. You didn't show your ankles as a lady, kind of, you know, kind of thing. Um, so this gave Victorians an opportunity to kind of commercialize, uh, commodify, and sell these stories. So they would get them together uh, and... It was around when they would normally sit around and tell these stories around the hearth and stay warm. They could have them ready to print in time for Christmas. Um, also, remember that in the Victorian era, which the, was the age of Gothic literature, so you had people like Elizabeth Gaskell, Margaret Oliphant, and Arthur Conan Doyle really created a lot of these stories and put them together for Christmas. Um, and it was also the age of Spiritualism and seances were really big at this time. And we I think we should do an episode on that, Martina. That's pretty sounds yeah. Really interesting. Yeah, I think it um, would be too. Yeah, Sign yeah. <laughs> so that really fueled their popularity too, right? Because everybody was going to these seances and supposedly talking to their deceased loved ones. And they continue to be an English tradition. Not as much as back then, but they they do continue. Yeah, and it was a tradition that I really hadn't heard much about either. I mean, I think everybody knows, like at least if you grew up in an English-speaking country, right, we all kind of know A Christmas Carol, or even if we didn't read the Dickens version of it, we've seen it, you know, kind of reimagined in various cartoons and mm -hmm. TV shows and whatever. Oh, it's just such, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a huge part of our culture, but as far mm -hmm. as that ghost story thing being a tradition, I didn't really know that either, but it makes total sense, right? Because mm -hmm. you have people in ancient times or even not as ancient, but just kind of, you know, pre-electricity, right? Mm -hmm. Winters were hard. It was probably boring and it got dark yeah. early. So it makes yep. total sense that people would be gathered around the hearth, right? The kitchen in the home and, to entertain themselves telling these stories on long mm -hmm. winter nights. And I mean, Christmas is pretty 
right? If you think about Christmas and the winter solstice, which is right around that same time, the solstice is literally the longest winter night. So what better time of year to be sitting around telling stories that kind of, you know, excite the mind. And I think even that Uh little bit of adrenaline you get from the spooky part of some of these tales plays into it too. And the, the chemicals it releases in our brains and stuff too, to make that time just like a little more bearable. Mm -hmm. Um, And similarly, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I said, yeah, I agree. And that's what part of being together as family and keeping warm and, you know, it ties that family together too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, And I think too, just like many holiday traditions, right? That's just one thing. But Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. other holiday traditions as well, we have roots of storytelling tradition that go back really before the Christian holiday of Christmas was a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I saw really recently in a meme of all places that I'd never really thought about was the tradition (laughs) was the tradition of our old friend Santa Claus. Right. And that idea of leaving cookies or hot chocolate out to warm him up that most of us, you know, I think we all grew up with that, but Mm -hmm. you can see some real parallels between pagan traditions and working with different patron gods and goddesses and the idea of making an offering to gain their favor, um, which I had never really thought about in the context of Santa Claus. But now that I've seen it, it's one of those things that's like, oh, that totally makes sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And it's the same thing with some of the traditions we have, like Christmas trees and decorating with evergreens. Um, I think the idea of like specifically a Christmas tree kind of goes back to Germany in, I can't remember if it is a medieval thing or later, but the idea of using evergreens Mm -hmm. goes back to pagan times as well, because fir trees in a lot of cultures were thought to have some kind of magic to them because they don't die. They, you know, their deciduous cousins have the leaves that change colors and they fall in the autumn and and are bare and kind of go dormant over the winter time. And fir trees don't do that. And so when you think about an ancient people that doesn't really have an understanding of, you know, the science behind it all that makes it happen, that could make a fir tree seem pretty natural because suddenly you have this one plant, right? This one thing in all of creation, at least I can't think of any others off the top of my head (laughs) that doesn't really appear to die or go dormant or anything Mm -hmm. like that. And it doesn't really succumb to the cycles of nature of which we're all part. So then this idea of, you know, Christmas trees and evergreens takes on this kind of magical quality that becomes associated with this magical time of year and by extension we have things like yule logs that are often linked to pre-christian celebrations of the solstice and the idea of building a fire in that fire right and symbolizing the warmth and light of the sun because even though 
we have at Yule at the winter solstice, this night where it's the longest night, it's also in that long night, the hope that, okay, after this, the days are going to get shorter. The sun will be coming back. So Mm -hmm. even though it's, you know, still, still months away before things (laughs) melt and get warm, it's like that first little glimmer of hope that says, okay, this is going to end. This isn't going to go on forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is not just, there's a lot of misinformation. I think sometimes that gets tossed around when you look at pagan traditions versus Christmas traditions and who stole what and who syncretized what. And there definitely is a lot of that that happens. It's not a coincidence that a lot of Christian holidays seem to fall right at the same time. (laughs) as their pagan predecessors, right? And some of that is even just to distract people, to Mm -hmm. say, hey, look, we've got this festival over here that's just as good as your your Yule. Yeah. Right? I mean, and if you, I don't want to get too deep into it, but if you look at texts and research and stuff like that, you know, the story of the the Christ mythos of him being born on Christmas Eve, you know, if you actually read the Bible and look at some of the details and and listen to biblical scholars, even it's very unlikely that Jesus was born on Christmas. Right. Right. But anyway, I'm, I don't want to get too far down that because that is a subject all of its own for more religiously oriented (laughs) podcast than ours. Um, But I do want to just share something we found from the Carnegie Museum of Natural History that does kind of underscore what we're talking about, about tradition and this tie of fir trees and fires to the idea of, you know, the longest night and the winter solstice. And what they had to say about it was that it was indeed tradition to sit around the fires to build, to ward off the darkness with the Yule log and celebrate the rebirth of the sun. And that humans haven't changed much biologically in several thousand years. And so a person's physical reaction to a harmless scare, right? The fairy tales, Mm -hmm. the folklore, the ghost stories, right? The elevated heart rate, the endorphin Mm -hmm. rushes caused by the adrenaline we still have that. We still have, you know, even going back further, <laughs> that lizard part of our brain that responds to certain types of stories and things yeah. that happen. And so that is ha- in part how mm-hmm. the idea of telling ghost stories around the Yule Fire became a tradition because you mm-hmm. have this kind of feeling of warmth and you get a little scared and then you've kind of got group bonding as you're sitting together through that scare in what was really kind of the coldest and darkest. And I would imagine sometimes, you know, if you go back far enough, even a little most hopeless part of the year, right? Because by by December, you're pretty much eating through your stores of food that were put away from the fall and, and all of that and having this celebration that says hey look i know it's hard but the light's coming back is you know is the powerful thing yeah yeah i think it's all about um that rebirth like you were saying Mm -hmm. and i think that kind of being scared and on edge that was a survival tactic it still is but much more back then i think was a way of surviving right um fight or flight was much 
more pronounced back then, I think, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you were saying, you know, you're you're getting near the end of your food rations and you are hoping, you know, I always call Christmas a time of hope. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, hoping they're gonna have crops in the spring, hoping they get enough snowpack or rain or you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, to to survive. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. And so you can kind of start, I think, through all of that to glimpse kind of the roots of that tradition and how mm -hmm. it became really ingrained. And it's something that lasted this idea of telling Christmas stories, the ghost stories mm -hmm. around the fire actually mm -hmm. lasted for several hundred years until the Puritans came around. And, mm -hmm. you know, you know, the Puritans, they were ready to kind of put the smack down on anything <laughs> fun. And it oh, really, yeah. it really kind of remained that way until 1843, when Charles Dickens published A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. And so in that spirit of telling the Puritans to suck it, we <laughs> <laughs> on Wandering Spirits of the Pacific Northwest would like to exponentially <laughs> increase your holiday spirit. <laughs> By A, introducing you to the joy of telling people to suck it, and yeah. B, sharing with you some of our favorite holiday ghost stories and legends, which is really why we're here. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds great to me. So we're going to start off this whole uh, round-the-world trip um, in the Germanic countries. So Germanic being obviously Germany, Poland, Austria, those areas. And... While you're going through this winter time, you're going through this longest night, you got to keep the kids under control somehow, right? Because they're probably just going crazy at this time. They're bored, they're cold, they're, you know, how kids get. So in comes Krampus, right? Now, this isn't what I know the most about, or I've heard the most about is Krampus. So the children in this part of the world, they only had, didn't just have to worry about keeping Santa happy and being good for Santa but they had to, at all costs, avoid Krampus. Now, his most recognizable version of him looks like the devil incarnate, really. Um, he has sharp teeth and horns and a long tongue and a goatee beard, and his clothes are hooved. I mean, he really does, from the image, look like the devil. <laughs> um, so he's half man, half goat creature, uh, and he's employed to cheerlessly beat naughty children with his bundle of sticks. And if you really piss him off, he'll take the kids, shove them into his sack, and they're gone forever. All eternity. You never see the kids again, right? Now, traditionally, he's kind of an accomplice of St. Nicholas himself. Uh, it's a Greek descendant, kind of born in Turkey, um, kind of famed for his enigmatic gifting right that's what santa claus was so in keeping with that good evil um dichotomy of christianity um such gestures of this just huge compassion and giving kind of needed a counterbalance right couldn't be all good so that's kind of where they feel krampus came from um and krampus may well have originated in pagan times like like we were saying uh, even before St. Nicholas was ever around, ever thought of, right? Um, 
and he became associated with this more famous kind of counterpart around the 11th century and then by the 17th century um, in certain localities. Krampus was a much you know, bigger part of St. Nicholas Day as well, um, which is also, you know, a, a Christian, Christian made holiday. But in Germany alone, there's like three different versions of Krampus and they kind of all operate with a similar agenda. But you were saying, Martina, where your family is from, it, it isn't so much a Krampus. That's kind of a different part of, of Germany. Yeah, so my family was originally from the Baltic Sea and then sort of settled in Berlin after the war. And it may just be mm -hmm. that it just wasn't something that was a huge part of my family's tradition. But Krampus right. wasn't really much of a thing in our mm -hmm. house growing up. Although I do want to point out that Krampus is definitely, I mean, it's he, the figure has definitely gained in popularity. Mm -hmm. U.S. over the last few years, right? I know in our town, we live in, well, I live in Portland and James lives in Salem, but we both live in Oregon kind of within kind of the portrait, Portland metropolitan mm -hmm. area. <laughs> um, and we have several events here. There's a kind of parade that features Krampus here in Portland every year. Oh. There are you know, places that host getting your picture taken with Krampus instead of Santa Claus. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and in Germany as well, this is not like a tradition of the past. It's a pretty living, vibrant thing. You can mm -hmm. look on, you know, any social media platform and see yeah. um, videos of Krampus parades where these, you know, groups of Krampuses mm -hmm. or Krampi or whatever they're called <laughs> when you get them together in a game. <laughs> are coming down from the mountain and and marching uh, through town and so it's a very i think it's a very vibrant alive mm -hmm. tradition which is really kind of a cool thing and yeah and it does seem to be kind kind of more of a or originating anyway as more of a southern german thing okay. um uh -huh. what i knew about growing up even though we didn't really we he really wasn't too much a part of our christmas celebrations either and i don't know maybe that was just because i came from kind of a mixed family where my mom was german and my dad was american so we just did kind uh, of a mishmash of things but <laughs> i knew about schwarze peter who's kind of not um not as monstery looking as krampus but okay. definitely kind of part of that whole like um schwarze peter is that right even i don't even know if it's right it might no, Knecht Ruprecht, I think, was the name of the guy. But anyway, whatever his name was, <laughs> I'm having this little brain fart at the moment. Still kind of that same kind of good cop, bad cop dynamic where, uh -huh. you know, St. Nicholas is the good guy who's bringing the presents and the other guy has his little whip or stick and sack mm -hmm. that the naughty kids go mm -hmm. into if they're super naughty. If they're not as naughty, then maybe they just get coal in mm -hmm. their shoes for Christmas, right? Because you put on... St. Nicholas Day, you put your shoes out, and if you're good, you get candy and fun stuff, and if you're bad, yeah. you get cool. Um, so it's, but it is fascinating when you look at some of these places, right? Like Germany's not, not that big, and that right, you can have right. so many different iterations of kind of similar archetypes that yeah, share yeah. 
similarities in their characteristics, but are kind of portrayed differently in different parts while still kind of preserving that same kind of essence, I guess. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Which is kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. So nice. that brings us to our next monstery person, which is from Iceland. And James, very kindly, as he was <laughs> doling out the assignments for who is going to talk about what, just coincidentally gave me all the ones that are hard to say. So <laughs> I, I apologize. I French guy. <laughs> well, you deserve the French guy. <laughs> Karma, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize to the Icelanders for my uh, pronunciation in some cases, but let's just dive ahead. So our <laughs> next figure <laughs> is Grilla, who is a giant ogre who lives in a cave. And during Christmas time, she emerges to hunt for children whom she kidnaps, takes to her cave, and then cooks in a vat of stew. So she's really wow. similar to, you know, a lot of these kind of fairy tale witches and ogres, or yeah. even um, uh, even in like The Hobbit, right? Tolkien borrowed a lot from fairy tale mm -hmm. where, the, um, where the ogres are fighting, or trolls are fighting over um, the dwarves to see who's going to make the best ingredient for stew, right? That seems yeah, to be a yeah. thing. But anyway, Grilla doesn't operate alone because she knows the power <laughs> of delegating, apparently. <laughs> so she has a variety of companions, including the Yule Lads, which is her gang of 13 unruly troll children who are large adult sons. And my favorite one, and this one, I'm so sorry, the Yola Katurin or Yule Cat, which we will call Yule Cat from now on, <laughs> just to make it easier. Yeah. Right. And if you're a cat person, I was going to say like I am, but I'm not. I'm a cat person, dog person, pretty much any mm -hmm. kind of animal person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you're thinking like we're talking about some sweet kitty that like curls up in your lap in front of the fire as you open up gifts and plays with the wrapping paper and ribbons and just makes this kind of atmosphere of cozy Christmas hygge, you're wrong. The Yule Cat <laughs> is kind of terrifying. Yule Cat walks among us like a roaring lion, seeking out whom he may devour. <laughs> wow. He through towns in the dark, peering into the lighted windows of children's bedrooms like some kind of feline peeping tom. <laughs> And the only way to save yourself from being eaten is to show him that you got clothes for Christmas because you were good this year. And if you weren't good and didn't get any new clothes, then you leave out old clothes and just kind of hope to God they made standards and you don't end up lunch. Hi, yi, yi. We've gone from um, the kids, you know, maybe getting in trouble to now we're just really hunting them down, right? We're, we're, we're right. Just <laughs> uh, okay, here's the French one. Now, <clears throat> there, uh, this is mostly France, Belgium, Switzerland, and that in that area. Uh, the last name I believe is 
Boutard, 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 Paris? Probably Foutar. Pair. Yeah, okay. I know this light because it means father. Yeah, there you go. Um, well, he was a butcher, okay? So he and his wife would kidnap, rob, and kill wealthy children. Um, he would then, this gets kind of graphic, then he'd kind of carve their bodies up, he'd hide them in salting barrels, which if you don't know what that is, it's a big barrel of salt used to preserve meat back in when there was no refrigeration. Um, and But St. Nicholas, he would discover the, the, the crimes of what this, this futard had done, and he would bring the children back to life. St. Nicholas would bring the children back to life. And as punishment, he forced futard into bondage as his um, eternal, excuse me, eternal cannibal manservant type thing. Sure. And he, yeah, why not? You know, everybody's got to have a cannibal manservant. Uh, and he follows St. Nicholas around dealing with the problem children. So my question is then is, if the kids are bad enough, does he just continue to chop them up and St. Nicholas doesn't bring them back to life? I'm confused. But anyway. I don't know, but I have questions. Because, yeah. right? So St. Nicholas discovered the crime and brought the children back to life. Yet, mm -hmm. he then turns around and employs this guy. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing. So is it that he's just pissed off that he didn't come up with the idea himself? Right, or right. Yeah, like the, the coal wasn't enough for the kids. You got to cut these little turds up and put them in salting barrels. Man, it's weird. I don't know. The whole CSI Miami thing. Probably right? With a little Sweeney Todd mixed in. Like a yeah, CSI yeah, yeah, yeah. musical. Yeah, just for good measure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Some of these stories are just. Yeah, it's pretty wild how they came up with this. Okay. So the next one comes from Alsace. And this is the story of Hans Trapp, right? Which makes me wonder because it's spelled just like the Von Trapps. If he's yeah, yeah, a, yeah. a relative. Of her. Yeah, great uncle Hans we don't Probably. talk about. He was the one who couldn't sing, so we had to find another vocation. Yeah. <laughs> Out. It's like the black sheep of the family. <laughs> anyway, Hans was renowned for his greed and unscrupulousness. And he used witchcraft and deals with the devil to become rich. And so after being excommunicated from the Catholic Church because of this, he lost his wealth and social standing and then took to, <laughs> took to the country to roaming the countryside disguised as a scarecrow. As one does. Yeah, sure. I mean, we gotta have a career. Right? And at some point, wandering wasn't enough for him. He became consumed with the idea of tasting human flesh. And so he lured a shepherd boy to his death, then cooked him over the fire. And before he could taste his first bite, God finally feeling things had gone too far, which again, like at what point does it go too far? <laughs> Wouldn't, like, killing the kids be enough? <laughs> but it's when he tries to eat them, which, you know, it makes me think we really should have should put a warning on this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to hit I don't want any children to hear this. Yeah. So anyway, God, when he finally says, whoa, Hans, that's too much, 
strikes him with lightning, and Hans Trapp dies. But he returns sometimes on Christmas to go door to door looking for young, tasty children to lure away and eat. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of cannibalism around Christmas all of a sudden. There is. <laughs> but luckily, your next one is a little nicer yes. story. <laughs> yes, yes. So we're going to go to Italy. Uh, and in Italian folklore, let me try that again. In Italian folklore, uh, the Babana is an old woman or kind of a witch, right? See her on her broom, very um, Christian-American witch, right? Um, who delivers gifts to children and throughout Italy. And she does this on Epiphany Eve, the night of January 5th. Uh, pretty similar, almost exactly the way that Santa Claus does or the three Magi Kings also brought gifts on, on January 5th. A mm -hmm. uh, popular belief is that her name derives from the Feast of Epiphany, which is an Italian feast or Roman Catholic uh, thing. Um, in popular folklore, the Bafana visits all the children of Italy on the eve of the feast uh, of the Epiphany to fill their socks with candy and presents if they're good. And if you're bad, you get a lump of coal um, or or some type of a dark candy. I'm not sure what that is. Means I don't know, candy. but if the dark candy's chocolate, I think that makes me... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's worth being a little naughty for a little chocolate. Right. <laughs> and in many poorer parts of Italy, and in particular in rural Sicily, um, a stick in a stocking was placed instead of coal because coal was pricey. Um, if you were a good housekeeper, um, many say that she will sweep up the floor before she leaves so she'll even come in and, and clean your house and to a lot of people at that time and still in this tradition today they believe that sweeping means the sweeping away of the problems of the year so kind of also like the pagan thing it was the rebirth it was the new mm -hmm. out with the old and with the new yeah well and even within like you know witches and besoms right the broom things that People will hang up as a decoration or whatever. Yeah. The idea of sweeping is symbolic of like getting rid of what you don't need anymore, releasing what no longer serves you and all of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes total sense. And, you know, the mind, how, how that yeah. would fall in. Um, so the child's family would, would typically leave a small glass of wine uh, and a plate with a few morsels of food on it, and often um, regional or local, depending on what area they were in, they'd leave them out for, for the Bafana. Now, she's usually portrayed as a hag, again, the witch thing, right? Uh, riding a broomstick through the air, wearing a black shawl, and is covered in soot because she enters the children's houses through the chimney. Hmm, that sounds Yeah, which <laughs> right? Um. She's often smiling and carries a bag or a hamper filled with candy, gifts, or both. So does Bafana replace Santa in Italy? Well, it, obviously, it seems like it does, like she does. Um, Santa Claus, outside of Italy, Santa Claus really has taken on the role of, of the La Bafana um, for the 25th of December. 
But Santa is also really well known in Italy. It's not like they don't celebrate that as well, because of course the Christian traditions came in and, and etc. Um, so what does that mean? Well, it simply means that Italian kids get to be uh, the recipient of gifts from two festive deities. The Italian kids got it good, as opposed to R one, right? <laughs> um, but finally. Well Sorry, but it just made me think there are places, too, where people, not as much here in the U.S., but where people celebrate St. Nicholas Day, where mm -hmm. in earlier in December, where, you know, like I was saying, you put your shoes out and he will leave you gifts or coal as well. So, like, if you leverage yeah. where you're living right, you you actually do have an opportunity. Mom, Dad, you got to move. For more Christmas gifts. Yeah, right. <clears throat> Um, so they think it probably originated in Rome, in that part of Italy is where the Bafana originated and having become well known and uh, practiced by the rest of the population kind of over the centuries. So many people believe that the name Bafana is actually derived from um, Italian's mispronunciation of the Greek word Epiphania. Um, so, and again, others point to the name being derived of Bastrina or Bastrina, um, gifts associated with the goddess of Strina. So we're back to that pre-Christian, um, belief system with, with the Bafana. So, but very yeah, much like Santa Claus. Yeah. Which again, makes that kind of idea connection to the idea of leaving an offering for her, mm -hmm. right, where it says that the family leave, where, where it says, where you said <laughs> that the family will leave out an offering of wine or, or local mm -hmm. food mm -hmm. um, is really kind of similar and an interesting idea, especially yeah, in connection so. with the idea that she's associated with this particular goddess. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And now we're moving back to Germany. Ooh. And we're going to talk about Perchta. And so if you haven't heard about Perchta before, she's kind of like if Krampus is the holiday season's devil, then Perchta is like the Germanic Christmas witch. And she's not necessarily as nice as Bafana. <laughs> and her legend comes, again, kind of from southern Germany or Austria. And again, is associated with Epiphany. So on January 6th, the feast, of, peace, the feast of Epiphany or the 12th night, mm -hmm. right? 12 days of Christmas. She would roam the countryside and visit houses along the way. And much like Krampus and good old St. Nicholas, she knows too whether children have been naughty or nice during the year, right? Mm -hmm. So again, we have this, this being that has sort of magical knowledge and, and powers. Mm -hmm. Um but the other thing that she would do is check if girls of the house had completed their spinning of flax or wool. And she would also check up on whether your house was clean enough. Okay. And here's where it gets kind of ugly. <laughs> if she was unhappy with any of it, she would take out the knife she carries around with her from under her skirt and slit the stomach of those she was displeased with and replace their guts with pebbles and straw. And wow. so. Yeah, I know. That's why I say it not as nice as Bafana. No. So if you take anything away from this story, it is go clean your room. Yeah. <laughs> Keep that house tidy. 
<laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right, so here's the thing about brooms. So you got to hide your brooms in Norway because at one time Christmas Eve was thought um, of much like Halloween. And I don't think that was just a Norway thing. I think that was probably, you know, pretty common. Um, mm -hmm. So in, in, again, that time when that veil of the spirits and the supernatural world was very, very thin. And many traditions spoke to this belief of that thin veil at the time. So in Norway, it was believed that witches and evil spirits would descend on homes on Christmas Eve. And if brooms were left out, these beings would swipe them to make their travels more efficient. Because who wants to walk and run everywhere, right? So many Norwegians hid their brooms. So um, if you got a broom on the outside of your door or somewhere, put it away because you're going to be giving out free transportation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's so interesting some of how many of these stories kind of have that element of it being a time when the veil is thin right and i think again this is something that kind of goes back to pagan practices and when you think about the wheel of the year and having these spokes around this wheel that coincide with the solstices and equinoxes, right? The uh, Yule, um, what was celebrated kind of before Christmas came along really is a celebration of the winter solstice. And so there's this kind of older belief that when, when you reach these kind of high days or holidays in the wheel of the year, that you have a time now where kind of the portal to the other side. You've got this kind of liminal time where it's easier to access the spirits and intuition and all of these, all of these kinds of things. And it's it's really interesting to me how many of these traditions have kind of incorporated that belief and and even even just that bit of magic, right? That you have all of these kind of magical figures that descend on the world at this right. time, whether they're, you know, kind of not so pleasant in there to disembowel or eat you or, you know, more gentle figures like the fauna or Santa Claus or mm -hmm. whatever it is that you, that it is this time of year when they're, when they're just kind of is magic in the air. Yeah, absolutely. And that, yeah. And, and you, you know, realize too that Santa Claus or St. Nicholas is a spirit himself. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you know, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that kind of whether you celebrate Christmas or not, or whether you celebrate some other holiday or even just Christmas is kind of the secular mm -hmm. commercial thing. That's right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that is kind of where that sense of magic comes from. And that's something that's that's really nice to hang on to whatever well, I mean, maybe not the disemboweling cannibal parts, but the, <laughs> the friendly ones that you leave well, for <laughs> and who bring you gifts. Yeah, <laughs> Lent, yeah, the kind of glowy, positive magic of the season. There you go. <laughs> and so, I think this is our last, pretty yeah. This is our kind of last story, and we've shared a lot of kind of less than pleasant. <laughs> 
stories and legends with you. So we wanted to really close with something that was a little more hopeful and inspiring and beautiful. And this is a story that comes from Eastern Europe, specifically um, probably from the area of the Ukraine. And that is the legend of the Christmas spider, which is really lovely if you haven't heard, heard it before. And as the story goes, there was a woman who was living in in a little town with her several children and she was a widow and they didn't have very much they lived in a really modest home with a dirt floor and couldn't afford a whole lot and one day in the summer the kids were out playing and somehow they managed to drag in a pine cone with them and the pine cone ended up on the dirt floor and was kind of forgotten and eventually began to sprout and grow and the children noticed it and they started caring for the tree and getting more and more excited as it was getting bigger because they realized that they're going to they, they could have their very own christmas tree probably for the first time ever despite their hardships right if you don't have money for food and clothes your you know your ability to go out and buy a christmas tree or even just time to go you know even if you don't have to go buy one but if you're a widow living alone with seven several children you're high on your priority list is probably not like finding an axe and going out into the woods and cutting right. down a tree i am yeah. guessing never having been in that situation myself yeah. but anyway the the children are excited the tree is growing and as it grows christmas comes closer but the family can't afford to decorate it because they have nothing and the kids go to sleep Christmas Eve, and they're happy they have a tree, yes, but they wish that it had kind of the magic of being decorated. And on Christmas morning, the children and the widow wake up and they go into the area where the tree is to discover that the tree is just covered in spider webs. And when they open the windows, the shutters to the windows, the sunlight comes streaming in and the webs start glistening in silver and gold as the light dances off of them. And because of this, the family never had to live in poverty again because suddenly they had all of these gold threads created by this generous spider who saved their Christmas and made their lives better forever. And that's why to this day, some people decorate their trees with spider and spider web ornaments because they're mm -hmm. supposed to bring good luck. I love that. That's great. That's a great way to end. Yeah. On a very happy, positive note. I like that. And from the image, it just kind of crossed my mind. You remember the old tinsel string? Yes. Like yes. Yeah. That is obviously where that came from, was probably that legend, you know, that story. Yeah. So it was a mess to clean up, but it was fun. Yes. And you don't want to have it if you have cats. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, 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 no. no. Or other animals, actually. Yeah, or probably even little kids who are naughty and... To chew on. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I love that story. I thought it was <laughs> really too. lovely. And mm -hmm. we got a little ugly in the middle, but we brought it back. <laughs> so. We brought it around. We switched over. We're back so, to the beauty and magic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yep, yep. Uh, so with that, everybody, we have come to the end of our survey of holiday stories and legends from around the world. So whatever you celebrate, we hope that you do have a happy holiday season. 
Uh, be sure to catch us uh, for our first episode of 2024. Uh, it's going to be good. We're going to go to Lafayette, Oregon, and we're going to talk about and do a little research on the town of Lafayette and the curse. There's a curse there. So we're going to investigate that. Um, we're also going to go to Eugene, uh, and I just got a message here. Somebody was really excited we were going to Eugene. They live in Eugene and couldn't oh, wait fun. to hear the episode. Yeah, it was really neat. So so happy holidays to all of you. Thank you so much for your support and listening, and we will uh, see you again soon. Yeah, happy holidays. Bye, everybody. Bye, and happy new year. <laughs>